Our scripture reading this morning is in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambitious in your ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace shall reap a harvest of righteousness. Bow with me. Father, we seek your word in our lives. What it has to say to us. And so, Father, we pray that you would use your word as that two-edged sword. That you would cut surgically into our lives. That you would change us for your glory. That we'd be different than when we walked in this door. Use your word to do your work in our lives, Father. And this I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Last time from James, we looked at the tongue. This time we look at the wisdom. Verses uh, 13 through 18. James hopes to acquaint his readers with a kind of wisdom. The kind of wisdom it takes to uh, navigate through the world. The kind of wisdom it takes to, to navigate life in general. The kind of wisdom it takes to have a living and vital faith. Uh, A different kind of wisdom than is common uh, to humanity. Uh, Vastly different. In fact, James wants us to understand that that there's two kinds of wisdom. Two uh, opposing kinds of wisdom. Two divergent kinds of wisdom. One which is godly and one which is godless. One that wins the day and the other that only thinks it does. One from deep within our own hearts and uh, one from the heart of God. Again, we discover how James bounces two opposites off each other. 
He does this so that we can see the difference. He lays them side by side so that we can see the difference, so that we can objectively compare the difference. So that we can see what faith does and what the flesh does. James interacts with us where we live, doesn't he? He's done this throughout his entire letter. We've watched this. We've seen it. His teaching is so relevant, so practical, so, so right down to earth. I've said this again and again and again, but it's true. It, it's personal. What he writes is personal. It's almost as if he knows each of us individually, doesn't it? And wants to give God's best into our lives. He's looked at our lives and he realizes how, how deficient our faith is. God has something better for us. And we miss out. So often we miss out. Every one of us in this room fits into one of these two categories, one of the, these two arenas. We're either living under godly wisdom or we're living under Godless wisdom. James brings the theology of heaven right down here. Each of us approaches life within one of these two arenas. Heavenly wisdom or earthly wisdom. A wisdom of faith or a wisdom of the flesh. James' desire in writing this is so that we will learn to differentiate the two. As I said, this is the point of his whole book. He wants us aware of the uh, defining lines of demarcation. He wants his readers to, to live holy lives with, with holy purposes. Something quite often we don't do. Yes, we live religious lives. We, we love to live religious lives. But there's a difference. A huge difference. Work through this with me. You can't grow roses if all you plant is weeds. You can't grow a, a, a lavish, beautiful, beautiful garden when you spend your time and energies on a weed patch. James brings us to wisdom, the kind of wisdom that generates a, a, a fruitful life, a, an abundant life. And to do so, he talks about the garbage patch that so many of us choose to live in. That's the contrast. The garbage patch or God's garden. So let me ask you, 
when you make a decision, a, 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 you come to a, a juncture in life, on what do you base those decisions? On what will nurture spiritual growth? What will, will, will further your faith and the, the faith of your family? Or what the world wants you involved in? Where do you spend your time, your, your energies, your preferences? In the way of the world or in the way of God? Is what you do a contrast to the way of the world? Or is it in agreement with the way of the world? Almost if, as if painting a portrait, James lays out the, the, the description of the, these two wisdoms, what, what they look like, the, these two lifestyles. Paul talked about uh, paintings last week. Put a couple of them up on the board. Talked about paintings. Well, James is painting portraits. What would a person who embodies earthly wisdom look like? And, and what would a person who embodies godly wisdom look like? Two portraits. The first portrait contains imagery of envy and ambition. People who aggressively seek life and uh, want to make something out of it for themselves. The key thought here is for themselves. This is a, a selfish undertaking uh, and, and have no illusions. It happens with those in the church just as regularly as it happens with those outside the church. Here's what it looks like, uh, verses 14 and 16. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, you will find disorder <clears throat> and every evil practice. This portrait is a portrait who, of people who who have wrong priorities and, and, and wrong desires about life, what it is, what it, what it should hold, what it should contain, what it means. I said this is a portrait, but perhaps portrait is too generous a term for the image of this first individual. Perhaps mugshot is a better term. Envy, bitterness, ambition, selfishness. Detail a, a mugshot of earthly wisdom, immature, self-demanding wisdom. Bitter envy is the kind of thing that bristles when things don't go your way. You know how you want things done, and uh, that's how they're going to be done. And if it doesn't, there's a cost to pay. People around you are going to pay a cost. Earthly wisdom is a, a, a me-first attitude. Now, it may not look like a me-first attitude. 
Not on the surface. There are those who have learned to hide it. They appear caring and concerned. They appear humble. But, but when you cut through the layers, the veneer, the facade, it's definitely self-centered. The sad thing is, is when a person like this gets their way, they, they often still are not happy. They find no satisfaction for themselves. They're never really satisfied, regardless what happens. Uh, an envious person is never satisfied. Henry Gerber put it like this. One cannot be envious and happy at the same time. Think that through. One cannot be envious and happy at the same time. Or uh, this guy, I don't know who he was. Uh, there was no, nobody took credit for it, but uh, I thought it was quite descriptive. Envy is uh, like a fly that passes over all the body sounder parts and settles on the sore. This person can't feel good about anything. Not even when they get their own way. Not even when it meets their own ends. This person is like the Grinch of, of the church. We've just gone through uh, Christmas. I'm sure we're all familiar with the, the, the Grinch. Ought to be fresh in our minds. This person is like the Grinch of the church. Now, now remember, James is writing to believers. He's not writing to unsaved people. He's writing to those who, who, who should know better. But this person is like the, the Grinch of the church, the, the, the person, the, the, the creature who became so angry at, at everybody else and what he saw in everybody else's lives that he, he bit himself, he chewed and gnawed on himself. All because of their happiness. This is what bitter envy does. When the church doesn't do things their way, it huffs off, taking its ball, going somewhere else to play, gnawing and hurting themselves as they go. Something is always wrong in the church for these people. Something is always unacceptable. While all of us battle envy to some degree or another, uh, for this person, envy feeds. It becomes I embedded in their, their characters. And, and yes, it may be hidden behind a, a, a wall of, of humility. But it's there nonetheless. It literally consumes and defines the being of this person. And notice where it all originates. Uh, in me and my wishes, my desires? Uh, not really. I wish it were that simple. James points to Satan, doesn't he? As the originator of this kind of lifestyle. James is saying, watch out how you live. You may very well be living a satanic lifestyle. You as a believer could very well be living as Satan would have you live. Religious, yes. Involved in the church, probably. 
doing all the right things? Yes, for all the wrong reasons. I want to see it. Look at verse 15. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual. There it is, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. If you think it's all about you, I have news for you. James is saying it's not. It's about Satan. It's not about where you are and what you get. It's about Satan and where he is and what he gets. We're just too immature to realize it. We're just too self-centered to realize it. Living a satanic lifestyle and your relations, your relationships, be they at home, be they at work, be they in the church, be they wherever, prove it. Your relationships show it. There are shambles. This garden is sown with discord and discouragement and dissension. There is no happiness. There is no peace. There is no contentment. There is no satisfaction. Is this heavy? You bet. But whoever said faith was to be light and fluffy and easy anyway? I don't know where we got that idea. It's it's certainly current in the church. But it's not current, at least in the writings of James. F.B. Meyer, one of the outstanding preachers of his day understood well what this passage is talking about. Yes, pastors battle this sort of stuff too. If you think we're different than you, you better think again. We're still sinners saved by grace, seeking the Lord's guidance in our lives and praying that he will use us for his glory. But F.B. Meyer, he, he, he told some of his friends, he said, it was easy uh, for me to pray for the success of G. Campbell Morgan when he was in, in America preaching. But when he came back to England and took a church near mine, <laughs> it was something different. The old Adam in me was inclined to jealousy. But I got my heel upon his head, and and whether I felt right towards my friend, I determined to to act right. Meyer goes on to tell how he handled the problem. He first decided to have a a reception for his colleague, uh, welcoming him back into the, the community. Then Mayer began to pray earnestly for, for Morgan's church and his ministry. Meyer said, but just see how the dear Lord helped me out of my difficulty. There was Charles Haddon Spurgeon preaching wonderfully on one side of me with with G. Campbell Morgan on the other. And he and G. Campbell Morgan 
were so popular and drew such crowds that our church caught the overflow and we had all we could accommodate. Had the flesh been given its way, F.B. Meyer would have been eaten alive. And his ministry would have been driven by Satan. As it was, God was glorified and and the community had, had three great preachers instead of just two. Pretty neat, huh? Good story. But only, but uh, envy is uh, only half of the, the, the story, half of the portrait here. The other half is, is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition takes several forms, all of which are geared to the, the, the promotion of oneself, the, the, the importance of self. Here's what I want. Here's what I expect. Everybody better step up and realize that I am the shaker and mover of all that takes place. I know what's best. You better figure it out and do what I expect. Elizabeth Chevalier, author of Driven Women, wrote in a letter, Have you heard the one about the novelist who met with an old friend? After they had talked for two hours, the novelist said, Now we've talked enough, uh, long enough about me. Let's talk about you. What did you think of my last novel? Selfish ambition. Says one thing, but really means another. The thought here is to to, to push the buttons and, and pull the strings that make the machinery run according to one's own personal design. At the same time, these people usually want a little or none of the responsibility for uh, the workload. Uh, They want the glory, but not the grime. We had a family uh, join our church, uh, and I don't think it was more than the second Sunday after they joined the church that the the, the man told me he was to be made a deacon. He said... uh, that every church he'd gone to, they immediately recognized his leadership qualities and immediately put him in a, 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 a leadership position. I told him I, I wasn't sure what other churches had done, but we believed that those in leadership needed to have proved themselves. That it was wrong to put untested people in positions of authority. Scripturally, men needed to have proven themselves over time, and we certainly wanted to afford him the opportunity to prove himself. Well, he began to bend uh, people's ears and anybody that would listen. I had several people approach me basically with the same message about how he was to be made a deacon now or we would lose him. Uh, My response, well, if we're going to lose him, uh, he shouldn't be made a deacon in the first place. If he's not willing to prove himself, he has no business as a deacon. That's one of the tests, the biblical test of deaconship, being proven over time. Apparently, there were those in the first century seeking to run things as well. They had no business running things, but uh, they thought their two cents was uh, 
worth more than everybody else's two cents. All the while, it was worthless. You know this type. They're pushy, they're opinionated, they're demanding. They're usually critical. They're fault-finding about what's taking place and that the game should be played their way. And as I've said, if not, they're going to take their ball and they're going to go somewhere else to play. Not everybody liked this is out in the open. Some are more uh, behind the scenes in what they do. They've, they've learned to work quietly and uh, just as negatively, just as, as critical in their fault-finding, just, just, as, just as divisively, but less open about it, less public. And you know what? These people might even be right in what they're suggesting what they're expecting. But perhaps you haven't caught it, but being right is not the issue here. These people may have a a good head knowledge, but what they lack is heart. These people are not godly people serving the Lord. They're earthly people serving their own desires. I knew a man some years ago who had read through the Bible every nine months of his faith. He, if you wanted a, a question answered, you went to him. He knew where it was. He knew what it was all about. He had a, a pretty, good, pretty good knowledge of uh, church history and theology. His, his knowledge was nothing short of amazing. But it went no further than his head. He was moody. He was rude, like is what's described here in this portrait. People couldn't get along with him. Nobody could get along with him. Not, not his wife, not, not his family, his, his brothers and sisters. The people in the church avoided him. According to James, this is exactly the fruit of earthly wisdom. Verse 16, For where you have envy and selfish ambition... There you find disorder and every evil practice. By the way, I don't think this evil practice is uh, really wicked, vile things. This is things that are closer to home, like jealousy and envy, probably like gossip. Things that are closer to home, you know, what, what we'd kind of classify as the lesser type of sins. Disorder just doesn't happen in the church. I hope you understand that. Disorder does not just happen in the church. It's the product of earthly wisdom. Immature, godless wisdom. Yes, these people may believers. And guess what? They might be right in what they're saying or, or what they're expecting. But... They're immature. They're godless. They've not been changed within their own hearts yet. Their heads might acknowledge what's going on, but not their hearts. These believers are immature. They they strive to control the dynamics of the church. 
But what they do is to divide the church. What they do is to dishearten and discourage the church. What they do drains the church of its ability to to minister. Why? Because it's not about the heart of the Lord. It's all about what's in my own heart. This is the portrait of this uh, first kind of person, and yes, it really is a mugshot. But there's another portrait here, isn't there? It too contains a list of characteristics. Look at them, verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. Then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Everything keys off that word pure. Each of the other characteristics flow out of that purity. And notice that this purity is diametrically opposed to the earthly wisdom, thoughts of of envy and ambition. Purity is is the absence of of sinful self-centeredness. It speaks of being clean and and undefiled, free from vices uh, uh, such as jealousy and factions and contentiousness. Purity talks about a a singularity of purpose. A singularity of purpose that puts the Lord first. Everything else is put off to the side or perhaps out of the picture. So that the Lord can have the singularity of focus he deserves. You see the difference? It's huge. Earthly life focused on self. Purity of life focuses on the Lord. His way, his wisdom. Everything else is put off to the side. And then out of purity flows a a list of other characteristics, which unless you've missed it, uh, cannot exist without the Lord being the, 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 the focal of the individual's life. It can't cohabitate in a life that's contaminated with earthly things. Purity, purity of focus, purity of purpose. Purity that creates a a rich, fertile environment for the list that follows to grow out of. Out of purity and purpose, first comes peace-loving. What a contrast to the previous mugshot, huh? Peace-loving. Individuals who strive to restrain the, the, the turbulent elements of discord within their own hearts and within their own world. Relationships. Not rebellion is the goal. Wisdom from on high nurtures relationships. It's concerned about others. Next in line uh, comes the, the character trait of being considerate. Of all of these listed, this is uh, the most difficult to translate. It's often rendered gentle, uh, uh, of being gentle. But it also contains the idea of uh, uh, being reasonable and kindly. 
You see, godly wisdom generates a, a gentle and kindly consideration for others around us. It's not hard. It's not demanding. It's not self-centered. It's concerned, kindly concerned about others. Uh-oh. Following consider comes the word submission, submissive. I can't hardly even say it. That awful, ooh, that awful S word, submissive. Where in the world would that get put in this list of good characteristics? Submissive. Well, I'll tell you how it gets put there because godly wisdom and earthly wisdom are vastly different. To the world, submission is an ugly word. In the Lord's wisdom, it is a beautiful word. If you study through the Bible, you're going to find submission woven throughout the pages of the Bible. It's a a solid biblical concept, something important for people of faith. With submission comes a, a readiness to cooperate with those over us. Submission is committed to following the leadership of those over us. And then it says, uh, full of mercy and good fruit. Mercy is uh, an abundance of compassion in uh, giving to others what is needed. Not what's deserved, but, but what is needed. Not what is deserved, but what is needed. And linked to it is good fruits. You see, mercy is, uh, has many aspects to it. Aspects that, are, uh, that reap a rich harvest. Godly wisdom touches others in, in a way that it, it bears a rich harvest in the lives of others. Not only in our lives, but in the lives of others. Others sense the difference that godly wisdom has made in your life. Next comes impartial. James talked uh, about this in length back in in chapter 2 under the word favoritism. God is impartial. The the wisdom of heaven is likewise without favoritism. There is no uh, ethnic or or financial or educational or, or whatever boundary you can come up with. It's not there. The concluding word in this list of characteristics, is sincere. Godly wisdom is free from pretense. It's without hypocrisy. There's no hidden agenda. There's no mask hiding ulterior motives to be discovered. Godly wisdom has nothing to hide. It does what it does out in the open. I don't know whether you've caught it yet, uh, James' point here, the big idea. Earthly wisdom is concerned with self, while godly wisdom is concerned with right relationships. Think that through. Earthly wisdom is concerned with self. Godly wisdom is concerned with right relationships. 
I read uh, about two teachers who were uh, uh, applying for the same position as, as vice principal in this high school. One had been teaching for eight years. The other had been teaching in that district for 20 years. Everybody thought the teacher with 20 years, the seniority, the experience was going to get the, get the uh, job hands down. But, but when it happened, they, they gave the job to the teacher with eight years' experience. The teacher that was overlooked for the job was, was uh, inflamed. He, he was angry. He's, he says, I've got 20 years' teaching experience to her eight. I'm vastly more qualified. To this, the the Sunday school board superintendent replied, yes, you have taught 20 years to her eight. But where she, she has eight years experience, you have one year 20 times. How long will it take us to learn from the events of our lives? How many times are they going to have to be repeated before we learn and grow in them? It's experiencing something doesn't mean we've grown and learned from it. Godly wisdom learns. Godly wisdom grows. It changes who we are. It analyzes the good and the bad, the right and the wrong, the the godly and the godless. And learns and grows as faith is factored into the equation. As godly wisdom is brought to bear on the events of our lives. The wisdom of this earth is concerned with the self, while the wisdom of heaven is concerned with right relationships. First, a right relationship with the Lord, and then right relationships with each other. First, a holy relationship with the Lord, and then holy relationships with each other. Bow with me. Father, it's so easy to get get caught up in the way of the world to allow it to define who we are. It's so easy to forget that you give wisdom to anyone who will ask for it. And it's so easy to forget that Jesus Christ came to give us holy relationships. A holy relationship with you and holy relationships with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. I pray, Father, this is a a day of change for many of us. I pray we, we have heard what has been said. And we realize the need of our own lives. And Father, I pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.